Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, everyone, we have a great guest lined up for you all today who has a wealth of knowledge in the um, IT world. So we have Mr. Jim Weiser. As a serial entrepreneur, Jim has founded and has angel invested in a number of startups in Japan. The startups Jim focuses on are in digital transformation in Japan. On a personal level, Jim has been running internet and cloud and sauce related businesses in Japan since 1996. He started his first company in 2000, second in 2003, and third in 2006, PBXL. In 2020, Jim founded SignTime, a Japanese company on, focused on electronic contracts, e-hankos, and digital transformation in a global environment. Previously, Jim founded PBXL, a SaaS-based company focused on cloud calling, which was acquired by Broadsoft in November 2015. Through the time Cisco acquired Broadsoft, he led both the SaaS sales and factory operations for the team in Japan until August 2018 when he moved into a dedicated sales role. Jim has substantial SaaS experience in unified communications and collaboration, hosted PBX services, integrated VoIP offerings, team collaboration, and instant messaging chat. Outside of collaboration, he also has experience with call center, contact center as services as well in both indirect and direct sales roles. In his previous role at Cisco, he built teams to work with the big three large telecommunication service providers, KDDI, NTT, and SoftBank, and the major Japanese SI companies like Fujitsu, Hitachi, CTC, and Mitsubishi. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Jim Weiser. Let's go. Jim, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Don. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, my pleasure's all mine. All right, Jim, so um, let's jump right into things. Um, I want to do a little background first. So um, where are you from and what did you do before you came to Japan? So Don, I was born in West Virginia. I grew up in Texas. And immediately before coming to Japan, I had been in Houston studying chemical and environmental engineering at Rice University. So I, I had the opportunity there to work in kind of a co-op style environment at a plastics plant not too far from the university. It's very educational for me. Okay. And what brought you to, what brought you here to Japan? Well, educational can mean a lot of things, right? So w one of the things I learned was that while I enjoyed the people that I was working with, the actual job related to being an environmental engineer at this plastics plant wasn't something I was passionate about. So I'd had several friends who had taught English in Japan. So I thought, okay, I'll go do that for a year or two and see how things develop. 
my original preference was actually for Vietnam, but I couldn't service my school loans if I did that. And so I guess about 27 years ago now, I came to Japan for a year or two, possibly three, and uh, been there here ever since. Okay, so yeah, that was 1993-ish, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so you, and you mentioned, just curious, you mentioned you wouldn't be able to service your student loans if it was Vietnam. Why is that? Did they not pay as well as Japan for English teaching? Oh, well, so Vietnam at that point was a super developing country. And so while you might get paid $500 a month or something like that in Vietnam and be one of the richer people perhaps in the village, that was roughly the amount of student loan service that I had coming out of school back then. Okay, I see, I see. And just quickly, are you happy that you chose Japan instead of Vietnam now? Do you think your life would have been material, materially different had you chosen Vietnam? Oh, I'm sure it would have been different, but that's the road not taken, right? So I'm, I'm very happy with my life, though, so how could I be unhappy with choosing it? Absolutely. All right, so you've been an entrepreneur for almost... 20 years now. So um, what kind of business experiences did you have prior to that? Okay. Well, so Don, when I first got over here, as I mentioned, I taught English for a bit. And so that was a good experience for me from a public speaking and to a lesser degree performance uh, experience. However, I felt peaked out of that pretty quickly and started doing some computer-related consulting. Now, I knew a lot of really smart computer people when I was in school. And I wasn't one of them, but I found out that my meager computer skills at this point in kind of 94, 95 were in high demand. And so I was able to get into the internet in Japan in 95. I joined a company called PSINet, which no one now knows, but at the time was one of the two companies in the world that was kind of the first to do internet. There's UUNet and there's PSINet, and they always argued about who was first. I also thought it didn't really matter. It's kind of like, all right, guys, you were both innovators. Anyway, I joined PSINet Japan when there were 10 people in an apartment in Shibuya. And that, that would have been in uh, 96. And then I left about four years later, where there were 600 people in Asia, 300 in Japan, you know, big floor plate in office. I still remember, you know, there was uh, the, the needs the um, building that we were looking for, there was only one building in Tokyo that we could move in and have everyone on the same floor at that time. I mean, that's a huge amount of growth from 10 to over 604 years. I mean, that's, oh, wow, just wow. It, it would look, it was super exciting. And I had, I don't know, maybe I mentioned it to you before, but I had nine business cards in the course of four years. That's a huge range of experiences, and it really helped my Japanese development as well. And what then, was the there? Was it mostly Japanese working there? Yeah, yeah. Of the 300, it was probably, I don't know, 270 okay. Japanese people who were in the offices here. So... One of the cool things about that as well was that I'd seen the company go from really small to really large pretty quickly. And so when I left, you know, I went and did 
kind of a year bouncing around between a couple of entrepreneurial organizations. First time I was on the board of a startup actually was it was in that year 2000. Um, that didn't go that well though. And so I was looking for something innovative, but somewhat stable in that, in, you know, 2000, all, a lot of the dot-coms were starting to go bankrupt. So it was a situation where I wanted something innovative, but maybe a little more stable than the dot-coms I'd worked with. And so in the course of things, I found a Texas company who wanted me to run their telecoms operations here. And the great thing was I could go back home for a, um, you know, for a business trip, it's back to Houston. Now, the one thing that was a little bit of a surprise for me on the large company innovative stability side was that it turned out that Enron was innovative in a lot of the wrong ways and much less stable than I had expected when I went in. Mm-hmm. So that lasted all of 10 months or so. Interesting. And what, and what do you think was the um, most important thing you learned while working at Enron? There were a couple of things. I've always been overly confident, probably, or irrationally confident in my own abilities, which um, you know can certainly come off poorly, or actually probably still comes off poorly from time to time. But I still remember going on a business trip back to the head office and seeing a trading desk with 50 people on it, none of whom were doing much business, and thinking, wow, I can be a superstar hero here because I could do more business than everybody here combined. And well, yeah, so the important learning out of that was, first of all, if you think that you're probably delusional about yourself, but also if you think that you should start looking for another job because anytime when you've got one person at the same level who thinks they can do 50 times what, what the other people are doing, something's not right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the other things though, that I kind of saw that was very interesting was that, you know, you learn things and you don't have frames of reference. So we were doing all these deals that were off balance sheet corporations and moving around fixed assets, taking one-time charges, so on and so forth. We're, you know, at 30, you don't have any feel for that. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's how we do this kind of business. Yeah. So it was an interesting experience kind of see how that developed and happened and and then how it went bankrupt. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, you've talked to me before about um, American Chamber of Commerce in Japan, or the ACCJ as they call it. What value did you find in being part of the ACCJ and do you recommend it for other entrepreneurs? Oh, sure, Don, I highly recommend it. I've been involved with it for 25 years or so. And the great thing about the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan is that it's really an international chamber of commerce. You know, it's the business networking is large and substantial, and it provides an environment where you can model yourself on other business people who are not in your direct reporting line or who won't be affecting your career directly. Now, what that means, particularly as a young person, you have the opportunity to see how some of the people at other companies act and what they do. I know for me, as a guy coming out of dot-coms, I mean, I mentioned how, I don't know, arrogant or perhaps cocky or self-assured or however you want to describe me at that time, how I was. 
the uh, I still remember going to I think it was the head of Citigroup Japan's office wearing red flannel shirts and a, shorts and a t-shirt so that we could discuss something. I don't even remember what that was at the time. It was probably e-commerce related. And he didn't say anything. It was really interesting. But the look I got said volumes. And I was like, oh, maybe you don't wear red flannel shirts, shorts to someone's office. Because um, mentally I was like, oh, well, you know, we Silicon Valley types are all casual and the world's different and so forth. And there's, pro there's still a decorum to be, uh, to be done, to, to be attended to, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, th I think as well with the ACCJ, it's one of those rare places, particularly when you're on the board, where you can see how high-level executives at other companies run things and how they respond within the context of good governance. And I feel like I've been able to improve my own management skills and my board participation skills by modeling myself on some of them. Okay, interesting, okay. Yeah, because up to now, my opinion, I mean, my experience with chamber, chambers of commerce, and, and it wasn't international, so I, I, served, I served on a few local chamber of commerces, but I thought they really weren't worthwhile, but I think it looks like this is a more on an international stage, so it might prove a lot more valuable. Well, it's different. It's the premier business organization for the international business community, right? So if you look at a chamber of commerce in a small town or even a larger town, it's going to be focused in a slightly different way. And the core driver for the American chamber, while it's very strong at networking, that's what about 85% of its members focus on, the 15% that focus on advocacy and affecting government policy are really critical to its importance. So whether it's things like changing the lines at immigration so that people with certain visas can get in with their families or working on the US-Japan tax treaty so that social security offsets get done in a proper and you know, easier fashion so what, what was the opportunity that you saw that brought your company the largest and fastest growth spurt, do you think? It, well, it was a little bit different. So in Wiser Consulting, the biggest thing I did was on-site consulting for certain types of computer work and got paid you know, high day rates for computer consulting. But in 2004, 2005, I kept seeing the same telecommunications problems show up for lots of companies. And so went on to found one of the very early hosted PBX companies in Japan. Okay. So yeah, I wanted to touch on that a little bit later. So okay. we'll come back to that one. So in 2008, things were getting pretty rough globally. So was your, was your company affected by that or how much was it affected during that period? So, so by 2008, I'd moved fully into PBXL. I was doing a little bit of consulting work on the side. Okay. Now, 2008 though, what most people don't remember is Lehman didn't hit until September. 
And it was not quite a bolt out of the blue. Bear Stearns had gone broke earlier in the year, but it was a big surprise to people. And so we had three quarters of fairly good growth in 2008, followed by a small trickle. It was 2009 and to a lesser extent 2010 that were really going through the wasteland where I still remember very vividly, we would literally close a new deal and then we would get a call from an existing customer saying, you know, hey, how do we send back stuff? We're out of business. We've shut down the office. So it was tough. And what was PBX um, mainly focused on? Was that, um, was that cloud service? Yeah, PBX, uh, I should have introduced it, I guess. So Wiser Consulting was focused on a telecommunications offering, mainly cost reduction where PBXL was a hosted cloud telephony service that replaced a lot of the typical business needs that you would buy a phone system and service for and put it in your office with a cloud delivered service. Okay, got it, got it. And um, was that something, so to get that started, was that something you had to do capital raises for? Did you need to raise money for investment for the company? So to start PBXL, I had one partner, uh, John Lemkel, who you may or may not know, who helped me start the company. And he had an IT company. So we were able to use some of his folks to bootstrap a bit at the beginning. And then from that, we went on to build the company. Okay. So I guess that's a long way of saying didn't raise much money at the beginning, used John's services. And I also, I funded a decent chunk of PBXL out of Wiser uh, consulting revenues. Okay. And I know if I'm correct, I think later down the line, while you guys are growing and expanding, PBX was eventually acquired by Broad, Broadsoft. Yeah, that's right. So we self-funded through 2014. And in 2014, I'd started the process of doing fundraising. So we had undergone a platform shift to use a US company or a, um, a telco grade solution. And that solution had led us to Broadsoft. And essentially we went out, we, we started talking to people in the market. There were probably, I don't know, 12 to 15 people who were companies that expressed interest. There were four that were serious, met with four of them. Broadsoft had the, Broadsoft basically said, hey, you know, why don't we just buy you instead of doing an equity thing with you? And so we moved to that fairly quickly. Okay, was that, um, was that, was that offer surprising? Well, I think it was more a matter of when we were trying to raise capital, we didn't expect offers from all four of the companies that were serious were actually interested in acquiring the whole thing. It, it, it kind of quickly switched from we'll raise capital to which I had a couple of people who were interested to, right, okay, we, we have offers, or at least we have indicative interests of entity sale. And I had my life savings in the company. So that was, you know, getting liquid can be useful. Okay, yeah, definitely. And um, I wanna back up for one second. So 
How so? You guys, PBX was started in was it around two thousand seven, two thousand eight? Two thousand six. Okay, so how long did it take um, for that cloud service, along with the um, other service, to catch on? How long did it take for that to really get momentum? So for PBXL, I would argue that it's just now. Um, what that, that it's just now getting there. You're just now starting to see cloud services for telephony in Japan. But we were in very much the early adopter and, you know, perhaps very early majority phase. Okay, yeah, pretty much pioneering then, huh? Oh, yeah. We were one of about three companies doing it at the time. Okay. So, and you mentioned when you guys started approaching the market for raising capital, how does that, how does that work? So if I'm a company looking to expand and I want to, I want to grow my company in Japan, how does that work when you're approaching the market for investors? How do, how do you go about that without getting too technical? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out the right balance. So I think the first thing we did, Don, was we tried to figure out what we would use additional capital for. Because we we had put a substantial amount of money into the company by this point and had borrowed several hundred thousand dollars, a half million dollars maybe from the bank, mm -hmm. which I had a personal guarantee on. So we were at kind of the limits of funding for a Japanese bank for a company of our size, or at least for where it was then. And there was very little in the way of venture capital in Japan at that point. Yeah, 2014, it was still early days. There were a few, but not many. So I started working my network of people in Japan and in the US, just putting out feelers. And in the same way I talked about the American Chamber of Commerce is effective because you know, you're friends of friends, essentially. That's more or less what happened with PBXL. It was people who knew people who helped connect. Okay. All right, so you, you complete that sale. Once that, so that the day that deal went through, how, how did that feel for you? And was John still with you at that point? Yeah, yeah. He, so John had been a non-operating partner the whole time. Mm -hmm. So he was the director of the company and involved with us. So for him, it was a complete exit. For me, I had a mix of reasons to stay as well as compensation for my shares. So it was great though. You know, when, when you, you know, we, we did the deal at, I don't know, 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Japan time. So it was real time in the U.S. for the buyer. And just the feeling of, oh, hey, we got this in was a good feeling, you know? So first thing I did was I paid off my credit card loans. <laughs> is, that, is that all? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was, look, before I went to bed that night, I literally paid off the, because I'd taken out uh, cash advances or something on credit cards, or at least maybe I'd bought equipment. I don't remember exactly now, but I just knew that they were sitting there at whatever, 18% or 21%. And then I went, then I went to sleep. You know, I was too jazzed to do much more than, or I was too jazzed to go to sleep immediately when I got home. But, uh, uh. and I know you are pretty, um, how can I say, I know, I know you're pretty careful with your money from, 
from the time I've known you. So, I mean, when that deal closed, clearly you're in a different tax bracket. So, I mean, was it tempting to say, okay, now I want to buy this. I want to get this car. I want to live in this neighborhood. Well, Don, I'm a pretty simple guy. You know, I sat down at some point in my life and I said, you know, what really, how, how would I define being rich for me? And I, I can talk to you later about the different stacks of rich that I came up with. But for me personally, it came to the, can I have someone help to clean my house? And can I eat blueberries every day if I want to? And so, you know, I didn't go buy a blueberry farm or anything, if that's what you're asking. But I, I continue to have blueberries regularly in my diet to this day. Okay, okay. And, and what did that do for, with, for your confidence uh, as a businessman and entrepreneur? Did that, did that put in, that in another stratosphere as well? Hmm. It's, I don't know the right way to describe it. I think it probably moved me from being a little bit more aggressively confident to a little bit more quietly confident, but it's difficult to make judgments about yourself now versus the past. And, you know, you kind of, you have to watch over time to see how those things developed and, I, I don't know, honestly, how it completely developed for me. Okay. All right, fair answer. All right, so looking back at that period now, how important do you think it was to have mentors and coaches, formally or informally, who could help guide you through entrepreneurship in a, in a foreign land and help you achieve the goals you set? That's an interesting question, Don. I think... People often spend a lot of time saying, well, I can't find a mentor for this or a coach or whatever. I, I feel like I kind of made my own mentors or coaches or whatever word you want to use for it. And again, maybe that's my lack of humility. Maybe that's me being arrogant or overly confident again. Mm -hmm. The thing that was really nice for me was in a lot of cases i had professional relationships with people much more accomplished than i whether through the american chamber of commerce or through the um the fact that i had done and been involved with the tech scene here since i don't know the mid 90s since or dot com one as i call it so that mix of things made it easy for me to reach out to people and say, hey, what do you think? How do you deal with this problem? What do you see? I think there's a tendency for people to want mentors maybe to overwork for them or solve their problems for them. Mm -hmm. And a good mentor is going to be more about being a good sounding board, I think, or saying, I found this, I had this experience. I don't know if it even relates to you because the experience stack is so different for each person that some things really resonate and some don't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And one thing I found here, I don't know if it's true everywhere else, but I mean, the people that I've become aligned with, like you said, that are a lot more accomplished, they're very generous with their time. So I don't know if I can say that for other places, but here in Tokyo, I've, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but for me, I mean, I've been lucky in that, 
in that sense with you and Mike and a couple of other guys I've met. Everyone's very generous with their time. So, Well, I think there's a tendency to want other people to succeed, right? This, this isn't the whatever crabs crawling out of the crepe, uh, clay pot thing where they try to pull each other back down. It's more like, look, yeah, I can put a hand down to try and help you up, but you've got to get up to where I can grab it. You know, um, yeah, that's that's not a great metaphor either. It's more like I can tell you how I got up. It's not even my hand. <laughs> but, uh, totally. I totally get it. Totally right? Yeah. And for me, great success, or, or when I look at some of the things that I feel like I've been most successful with in the business world, it's that... I have a number of friends who on the monetary side of things have done much better than me in terms of great outcomes. And I think it's fantastic. It's good for everybody. Mm, yeah, definitely. All right, so now, I think, so now you're working on a couple of other startups. Can you, can you talk a little about those? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> So give us the, so, you know, the rest job. I'll give you the elevator pitches on both. So the first business, Communified, is one that is similar to what I did at PBXL. It's a security and collaboration hosted platform sales company working closely with Cisco, working actually closely with some of my old team members from when I was at Cisco after the acquisition. So that, that's, that's a really neat business. It fits well with the changes in communications that are happening now and enabling remote video meetings and the ability to tie the phone system into that too. You know, more than just a dial-in, making a single unified approach to it. Then the, the second business is sign time. And that is a digital contract signing company so what we do is we make it very easy for companies in Japan and around the world to process, sign, and retain contracts and other important, you know, business critical information within the context as well that you might see in Japan, whether it's getting internal approvals via the Ringi Show or just doing things like sending a quote out for a signature. Okay, and with, with sign time here in Japan, are you able to in, um, incorporate Hankos onto that platform? Yes, yes, we actually have a we have a make your own Hanko as well as a upload your own uh, registered seal onto okay. that. And so for uh, for our listeners outside of Japan, can you explain briefly what, to them what a Hanko is? Oh sure, yeah. In Japan, a Hanko is known as a chop. Or, in China or a seal in other places. It's a stylized and legally registered name of a company or an individual which has the weight of an individual's signature in a legal environment. Okay, thanks. And I know the new prime minister, Suga, is interested in actually getting rid of that. So I don't know how successful he'll be in that effort, but what are your thoughts on that? Do you think things would be much simpler without without that part of it and just a signature? 
So we certainly support the digital transformation of Japan generally. The business adoption of platforms and technologies in Japan is comparatively slow. And yet we are very excited about it. I had discussed this business with my co-founder in 2018 and thought this would be a very, it's a 20 year slog, which would be very slow was my analysis at the time. Now in 2020, it's a different, different uh, world. So we think there's a substantial opportunity there. Okay. And Jim, you also do some angel investing. So can you talk a little bit about some of the companies you've invested in and the success any of those have had? Sure. So maybe I should talk about the exits first, or should I talk about the failures first? <laughs> <laughs> However you want to do it, it's up to you. Okay. So, well, let me, let me start with the learning experience first. Uh, it was the first angel investment I did, and it was with a guy who I'd known for a while. He's actually a former customer of mine, and a good guy, a very solid guy, but we put a fair amount of money in. He was, he's good at the fundraising part, but when it came to actual execution and selling, it didn't match up at all. And so we blew through, or that company blew through more money than I ever had when I was at PBXL. And I was just like, really? Wow. Okay. I, meh. Uh, but I bear him no, no ill will. You know, these things happen sometimes. Then the next two that did well for me were, uh, I guess, Jay, Lin Jay Winder at Make Leaps, who you might know. Jay built an online billing platform that was later acquired by, oh shoot, I've blanked. It's either Rico or Canon. I don't remember which one as part of their digital transformation. And I had the opportunity to invest with Jay as he grew. And then the, uh, the other platform that I invested in was a company called Entouch with Marty Roberts. And Marty was someone who'd formerly worked in pharmaceutical education and training for doctors. And so he built an online platform where he had people who could do this working on behalf of pharmaceutical companies to educate the market on what existed. And Marty's sale to Toho completes at the end of November. I know we're not releasing this podcast until later, so I'm comfortable <laughs> talking about it now. Yeah, well, congrats on that. And, and as far as, I mean, you mentioned failures, but I think with angel investing, venture capital, I mean, every, everything's not going to be a home run, right? So... I don't think it's necessarily a failure. I think it's just, I mean, you're learning what works and doesn't, doesn't work. Well, sure, sure. I mean, another way to describe it is I paid my tuition on the first one, right? Yeah. I, I messed up the sizing and it was the wrong product and it wasn't something that I'd thought through in the market. And yeah, I can go back and figure out all the things I did wrong on it. And so it's good. It's expensive, but you pay tuition for things. That's you know, and often the, the more you pay, the more obvious it is to you that, you know, okay, that was an expensive, an expensive lesson. Yeah. Um, there, there are some others that I'm very 
comfortable with as well. Um, you know, one is uh, the Binfinity exchange in Bitcoin space. And another that I'm proud about is uh, Real Vision, which is a, it's focused on democratization of finance. And any of your listeners who are into financial news should take a look at Real Vision. Okay. So most of the companies that you, um, you're focused on working with are in the tech sphere in some, in some form or another, right? Yeah, I mean, that's where most of my connections lie and most of my domain expertise. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I have a couple of relatives who are in biotech or medical. And so if they invest in something and say, hey, do you want to co-invest? I'll say, sure, how much are you putting in, right? But it's not, I add no value in that particular case. That's That's purely a monetary investment where I'm using someone else's due diligence, right? In a tech environment, I, in many cases, I can add some degree of additional advantage. And it's one of the things I've looked for with the ventures that I've invested in. Not all of them, but some of them. Okay. And can you talk about what kind of, what are the criteria you use when you're deciding who you're going to invest your money with or what company you're going to invest your money with? Is there a criteria or is it just gut feeling? How does that work? So there are a series of things that I look for and it depends on what country we're in too. So for the things that I've done outside the US or sorry, outside of Japan, I've typically looked at uh, smaller size investments with larger upside opportunities. So if you look at how traditional portfolio theory works for most angels, it's all about getting the, you know, 100,000 times return type thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that means that it's all, you know, you should try to find Facebook. And if you don't think it's Facebook, don't bother investing. And that's the translation to that. You're better off with other types of investment. Okay. Uh, following that, following that portfolio uh, analogy, uh, not analogy, uh, analysis. Now that doesn't mean you can't have really good returns other ways, but that's the most commonly understood one. <laughs> For Japan, I've focused more on digital transformation, and because there's no or very little mid-market M&A. So there aren't many acquisitions that are done in the, I don't know, 100 million to $500 million range here. They exist, but it's not, it's rare to see a startup get grabbed there. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost one of those things where you'd say, oh, this one company did it. You know, and yeah, uh, an example would be like KDDI buying uh, the IoT company Soracom for something like 180 million. That was really exceptional, not just because KDDI made a buy, because they do that, they do a lot of tuck-ins, but for the amount that they paid for the business, because most Japanese companies are very, very focused on, okay, well, what's your EBITDA? And for a fast growth company, EBITDA is not a it, it's not the first metric necessarily that you look for. 
it's not completely irrelevant, but it's not where you start. Okay. All right. I think that answers that. All right. So also, Jim, I wanted to touch on to you. I wanted to touch on with you some specific goings on in the business world globally. So I think one of the things I've read about recently is uh, the recent investigation into Robert Smith and Robert Brockman for tax evasion, and where it looks like Robert Smith is turning state's evidence against Brockman in exchange not to be prosecuted. So, I mean, let, let's say you're, you're a 36-year-old Smith and get an offer for a one, $1 billion investment into your company, but there's a kit. So in Robert's kit case, Robert Brown, a large percentage of the profits had to be deposited in an offshore account and hidden and not reported to U.S. tax authorities. So at 36, would, would you take that same deal? Well, Don, it's always difficult to say what you would do. No one's ever offered me to manage a billion dollars. Because if you do a, a, a billion dollars on what a two and 20 arrangement, so a typical you know, venture capital or old style, at least hedge fund, private equity management situation, that translates to $20 million a year in management fees alone. Right. Right. <clears throat> so so that's a lot of money. And fortunately, I've, or unfortunately, I don't know, I've never had that temptation. Yeah. What I can speak to are some of the things I alluded to earlier. I don't know what I would have done at age 30 if I'd had a deal like that coming out of Enron. So that, that wasn't necessarily as clear to me. I think I would have said no, because it's clear that it must be in this offshore account and not reported, right? right? But if it had been a complex structure that I didn't really understand, might have been different. At 36, after I'd been running my own companies for a couple of years, I believe I would have said no, but a billion dollars under management is so much more than I ever had to tempt me. I don't know, right? Right. I, I do know there are deals that I've walked away from that looked very, very profitable, but I just didn't trust the other counterparty. And so I rather than try to finesse it via a contract, I just said, no, not interested and moved on. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I think that's the main thing. Somebody, even in the article I was reading, somebody, one of the other, um, I think one of his other colleagues says, nobody gets offered this kind of money yet at 36 years old, you just never see that. So, and I think, and, and you mentioned about not trusting the other party. I think, I think you and I were talking about this before and I think you mentioned Brockman doesn't have such a good reputation as far as doing business. And he has some, he has some other things where employees weren't so, didn't speak so highly of him as well, right? Yeah, I, I believe that UCS, the company that he founded was never on these great places to work lists he was very extractionary was my impression so yeah. yeah so it sounded like he this guy was a client of um roberts when he was at um goldman sachs i believe i think what, where, where he was working at the time so i don't know if he knew the guy's reputation or what kind of guy he was but 
And it sounds like even his lawyer told him this was a bad deal, but even his lawyer told him he should take the deal. So, I mean, when, even when your attorney tells you to take the deal, but it's bad, it's kind of, I think it's hard not to, especially that amount of money. Well, I think that's true from a strictly legal perspective, but if you're depending on your attorney to help you with ethics, you might be fishing in the wrong pond. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's a good point. So if, if your attorney tells you to take the deal, I mean, does, does that get you off the line legally? And you say, hey, my attorney said I should take the deal. I don't believe so, but I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, but it'll be very interesting to follow because I mean, just the fact that they're not prosecuting him to prosecute another billionaire, it, it makes you think they must really, really have it out for this guy, for Brockman. Yeah, I think there's a, I don't know how it works. You know, this, this level of play or the scale of wealth is honestly so far beyond anything I've experienced that I don't, I don't have any particular idea other than I'm a general believer that it's important to be tough on blatant crime. Yeah, not just or say blatant crime, clear crime. There's th things that aren't uh, so complex, things that are clearly outside the law. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's good to prosecute these people aggressively. And it's one of the problems that we had with kind of the late 2008, early 2009. You know, Ken Lay died in jail, right? Or died shortly after getting out. I can't remember which. Jeff Skilling just got out of jail a year or two ago. So those in Andy Fastow, sorry, that's the C, those are the CEO, the COO, and the uh, CFO of Enron. Um, those guys spent serious time. Yeah, that's like 20 that, years, 20 years, right? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think they were usually 20, but it was still enough time that you really had people's attention. <laughs> yeah. So when I think that's important and it's important as well from a market perspective where as an entrepreneur, you want people to be cheering for you generally. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, but when you get to a state like you have in some parts more of the U S where, Oh, well, you know, all entrepreneurs are basically thieves. That's a, that, that's a bit of a different situation. And I think it's important to kind of cleanse out the brush from time to time for things that are really, really um, over the top. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, you start to get that noise where all billionaires are bad or evil or they're stealing and exploiting. So, yeah, I think at some point you do need to make an example of these people or, or the, just the, the industry or the market has no integrity. Yeah, correct. Okay, so of course now you see you saw the things that um, Robert Brown did philanthropically. I mean, do you think that makes amends for what he's done up to this point? Well, if we go back to the spiritual again, you think you could buy indulgences to get your way out of sin? Mm, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, I. I I don't necessarily think that's exactly the same. I think he's done some good things too. And it's an interesting kind of back and forth, but 
you know, I, from my perspective, it was clear that he realized that he was wrong about this and perhaps it bothered him more over time. I know he changed his lifestyle or at least he, sorry, that may not, that may not be true. I know that he went from having someone he'd grown up with or gone to school with and married to moving on to a different family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know the situation. It's like any private situation. You never know what, what's actually happening. Right. But having someone who's known you for a long time does have advantages when keeping you grounded. As soon as you get to thinking you're all that, it's like, eh, I remember you when dot, dot, dot. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that was actually my next question. So I think this is definitely a, a fable for, for an entrepreneur coming from modest beginnings and then seeing incredible amounts of wealth in a relatively short time frame stand grounded and focus what, what what would be your advice or recommendations for doing just that and not getting caught up in the the prestige fame or glamour of it all well i think it depends to some degree on how you're wired right don yeah so what's the point of having money what's the point of doing these things i personally believe kind of if i had a a single line to describe my personal philosophy. It's creation is good, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, 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 I sometimes tell people I'm a creationist and they get very confused, <laughs> but it's not that kind of creationist. <laughs> I'm in favor of making stuff that wasn't there before. And I believe strongly in the power of people to do that. And so I guess you can take some of that is well out of it where you you get hung up in running up the score you know i mean how much money do you need for a happy life 10 million bucks 5 million bucks 2 million bucks if you read historically you don't actually necessarily need a whole lot the people who are happiest in the u.s make about seventy-five thousand dollars a year and then they have declining happiness after that at least based on the studies i've seen so people get caught up in the game and trying to run up the score rather than just saying, well, how do I win my life? And I would just say, focus on winning your life in a way, ideally in a way that doesn't hurt others. It's an important part of winning the life, I think. Yeah, that happiness is a, it's a, it's definitely a fleeting thing. It's, it's a funny thing to try to define because I guess it's different for everybody, but one of the things I was reading reading recently about happiness is it's just something that you just have to make a decision to be. I mean, that's something you decide when you wake up every morning, right? Either today I'm going to decide to be happy, or I'm going to decide to be, you know, in a in a shitty mood for the situation I'm in. I mean, it's up to you every day to make that decision, and it really doesn't make a make a difference how much money you have. I mean, at the end of the day, money is just an, a medium of exchange allowing you to express yourself in different ways. So if you're looking for money to make you happy, then you're never going to be happy anyway. So well, money- what, what I would say, Don, is it's, you know, it's like blueberries, right? If blueberries are the thing that make you happy, get some more blueberries. But uh, it's beyond that. How many blueberries can you eat? Yeah. Uh, is blueberry your favorite fruit, Jim? It's not my favorite food, I don't think. I just remember as a kid, I loved them and I could never get enough. And so I have this mental shortage built into my mind of, you know, if you can, better eat some blueberries. So, 
All right, very good. So we covered, we covered a lot of ground today, Jim, and some incredibly nice philosophizing on very, a variety of topics. So let's do a quick um, lightning round now before I let you jump off. Uh-oh, am I gonna be struck by lightning? Maybe, depends on what you say, I guess. Okay. So um, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, that's a great question, Don. I think there, there's several and it depends on which part of my life and when we would be talking about. So let me see if I can kind of, um, kind of think through that for a minute. So I think Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Millionaire Next Door were both really valuable for me probably after the dot-com era because I got caught up in the go-go dot-com stuff and I lost about 70% of my net worth by the time I was 29 or 30. And The Millionaire Next Door talked a lot about reducing expense and living within your means. And that was very good. I already had a bit of that bent, so that was helpful. And then Rich Dad, Poor Dad talked about passive income and how that was really how you should look at assets. Does it pay you or do you pay it? Exactly. So the classic case is, you know, a, a boat, right? <laughs> boats in the boats are known for being big money sinks, but yet if it would show up on your balance sheet as an asset. Yeah. So those were a couple of just personal ones that hit me at the right time. Yeah, the Lexus and the olive tree. I wouldn't have gotten into Enron without the Lexus and the olive tree. It's it's a book about globalization written by a fairly famous New York Times columnist whose name's, name escapes me at the moment, Friedman, I think. It's interesting to read that with the 20-year historical look back, though. Maybe there are some lessons that are a bit different now than when he wrote it. Okay. Uh, if I were going to look at books over time that have really been important to me, um, the older I get, the more I find the Bible being useful for reference. You know, Will Durant's Les Lessons of History is quite good. And then the best book I read this year, which is just so striking, is Chris Arnaud's Dignity, The View from Back Row America. Dignity, Chris Arnaud, okay. Yeah, a couple of those I haven't heard of. I'll check some of those out. All right, good. And um, next one, how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Failure is always tricky, right? So in some ways I could say, or I was the, not in some ways, but I was the worst chemical engineer in my class at Rice. Yeah, whatever the opposite of head and shoulders is, knees and ankles. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, I was you know, number 13 to 13. And- Is that from partying or not studying or just, you couldn't get oh, over I think it was a mix of things. You know, the social part of college was more important to me than the intellectual part. Hmm. Yeah, you know, co college for me would have been a much more intellectually engaging thing to happen in my mid-30s. But I did learn quite a bit 
that I internalized as well from the classroom. And it gave me a lot of tools other people didn't have as it, most of the people in internet space were uh, computer science. So, but what I'm really happy with and what I learned from doing that was I stuck it out and I still graduated even as the, the slowest runner. The slowest runner who finishes the marathon still finishes the marathon, right? Yeah. So I don't know, is that compared to my high school grades, that would definitely be a perceived failure. I was near the top of my class, but it showed me that I could grit it out. And then there are other cases of missed opportunities. I had a chance to run a $10 million internet business at age 30 here that I turned down uh, because I thought, well, you know, I want to go do something exciting with a startup. The advice I'd give to any 30 year old who has the opportunity, who's never run a business before, certainly, but the opportunity to take over a $10 million company to build it at 30 is go do it. You know, you, you should really do that. That's a good opportunity. You don't even understand. I didn't understand the opportunity that was being presented to me. And later, maybe two years later, once I joined Enron, yeah, I had the opportunity to join a number of my old PSI net friends who went on to start an internet security company that later IPO'd. I missed that too. Mm -hmm. But without missing those two things, I probably don't start my own company that then becomes, I would say it was successful. Yeah, and had a good exit. So, you know, always hard to play back to rewind the tape and see what you could have done if you hadn't done. Hmm, okay, and um, this is one of my favorite ones. If you could have an advertisement, well, not an advertisement, if you can have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Could I have two billboards? Yeah. I'd go with creation is good, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And then I'm still, I really enjoyed the movie Bill and Ted's back in the day, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So be excellent to each other would be the other thing I'd choose. Okay. Excellent. Be excellent to each other. I don't think I ever saw that movie. I definitely know it, but I never, never saw the movie. Oh, uh, it was Keanu Reeves before anybody knew Keanu Reeves was a movie star. All right, and number, next one, what is a habit or peculiar routine that you love? I really love to read. I'm a pretty voracious consumer of information. I don't actually like video all that much because real life is too slow versus my reading speed. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there are TV shows that I do occasionally watch, but I don't spend much time in front of uh, the TV or even watching Netflix or what have you. How many books are you reading a year? Oh, uh, 20 to 40. Yeah, I probably, com you know, I'm completing more than one a month. And I'm, but I tend to be a parallel book reader. And I also subscribe to the, you don't have to finish a book you start if it's not as interesting as it looked at the beginning uh, view, so. That's my hard part. For me, I feel like if I start this book, I have to finish it. So like this year I'm at, I think I'm on my num number 28 right now, but yeah, even like the one I'm reading, it, it reads so slow, but I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get through this book I started it. Cause I feel like what I don't read, that's going to be the best part or the most important part. And maybe I should take your philosophy. Look, I completely understand that. And I have gutted out certain things. Like I read both fiction and nonfiction fiction. I have a very high bar. I'll drop fiction quickly. 
Nonfiction I've usually picked because I'm interested in a subject or feel like I don't know enough about a subject. And so I, I will take more of the, you know, eat your spinach variety of reading with that. But if it's not well written, the author hasn't did his job well enough on the cover, you know, but uh, maybe she didn't engage you enough in the inside. Yeah. So. All right. And in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? In the last five years. So that's since 2015. So I've always been into exercise, or at least as an adult, but I've started lifting weights again. I lifted weights in high school and a bit in college. I started lifting weights again in the past couple of years. And I just like the feeling I get after doing that. There are health benefits as well, which were part of it. But just making sure I, I do relatively heavy lifting. I mean, not like uh, what? Not like competitive heavy lifting, but you know, enough where I'm going to notice it the next day. Okay. All right, and what, what advice would you give to a smart, driven investor about to invest their hard-earned capital with, with someone raising capital for an M&A acquisition or a real estate venture? Well, I think the investor that I would talk to is, you know, I'd say first and foremost, does your gut tell you that this person is worthy of your trust? Because at the end of the day, when you're investing, when you're doing business, when you're doing anything, it's all about the person that you're working with. Now, that person may end up, you know, not having the best business plan or whatever. But if they're honest and upright with you, that's the most important thing. Yeah, everything else is addressable. Okay. All right, good stuff. And what are what are bad recommendations you hear in your day to day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? There are probably two things that I would start with. One is some people confuse raising money with business acumen, mm -hmm. and they'll talk about how much money they've raised rather than what return they've delivered for their investors. Raising money is a skill, that's fine, but it's not an outcome. It's part of the journey. And I think lots of potential companies or lots of potential entrepreneurs don't even need to raise real money. Because once you do raise money, now you're on the capital growth train, where if you have a slow start, you know, you will end up getting folded or exited, even if you don't think that's the right thing to do. Had I had material external money in PBXL, I don't think we would have gotten to the exit. They, they would have looked at things in 2009 or 10 and just said, you know what, we're shutting down. Okay. The other thing I really hate, which shows up from time to time and drives me nuts, is the expression, fake it till you make it. Hmm. that can be taken a lot of ways. I think it'll, for some people, it, that just means if you feel imposter syndrome, don't get too hung up on 
whether you're worthy or enough, enough or whether you've done enough to be in a conversation or in a room or what have you. But conversely, fake it till you make it often means kind of lie. <laughs> and so I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah, and you definitely hear that one a lot. I mean, you hear that. I hear that more than anything, fake it until you make it. But like you said, it's how you interpret that that I think really matters. All right, so two more. In the last five years, I like that. I like that time frame for some reason. What have you become better at saying no to? Last five years, what have I become better at saying no to? Don't laugh, but I think it's food when I'm not hungry, <laughs> except maybe blueberries. <laughs> Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a good one for me, too, because, I mean, yeah, you, you late at night, you're bored, and that's the first thing you want to do, right? Go to the fridge, so that's... that's yep. Yeah, that, that's that's completely right. It's a... Now, how much of that is just I'm older, and so, you know, my my uh, my ancestors didn't want to get put out on ice flows or whatever, so they started to eat less. I don't know, but uh, uh, that's, that's, that's one of the things I can look at and go, okay, I can turn that down. All right, very good. All right, and last one. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? I think that really depends on the situation. So there are some times where I'll meditate. There are other times where I will just exercise super hard. So these are conscious reactions, right? That's that's really your question. Mm -hmm. How consciously do you address feeling overwhelmed or unfocused? So sometimes it's like I double down. It's like, all right, I'm going to do more of this. Some other days, and I remember this, there were some days where you come to the office and you're just like, you're not feeling it for whatever reason. It's like going to the gym and feeling weak. It's like, all right, well, I'm still going to do something productive. So that might be email cleanup and backlog and accounting and finance or whatever. Yeah. The other thing that I do when I'm just feeling that way emotionally is I'll exercise hard. If I go get really, really, really tired, whether it's on weights or cardio, yeah, I've, I've reached the, I can't be overwhelmed because I'm too tired. <laughs> yeah. Then I don't feel as unfocused because I'm just kind of like I'm worn. Right. Um, the way that I will sometimes notice that I'm feeling overwhelmed though, or unfocused is that I eat more or I eat hard or I eat cause I'm bored or, you know, I I'm looking for that tangible mouth experience where you're like, Hey, wow. Okay. That's, that's like, you know, a, a uh, an excellent pleasure receptacle or whatever, however you want to describe it, where you're just like, I'm getting something to eat and it's great. Yeah, so. All right, excellent. Excellent, very good. All right, so thanks so much, Jim. We really enjoyed this time, um, spending spending time with you today. I think our listeners will really get some great value out of um, the advice and wisdom you shared with us. But before we jump off, um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, collaborate with you, buy your next company, how, how can they get in touch with you? <laughs> um, so probably the easiest way is LinkedIn. I'm active on that. 
and then yeah i also uh i have a couple of different companies i'm jim at signtime.com or jim.wiser at wiser.biz both of those work as well okay excellent all right jim so thanks for joining us you have a great day I'll, i'll be talking to you real soon i'm sure look forward to it don have an excellent day thank you for your time all right you too there you have it guys another episode of dealmaker diaries in the books if you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing please do leave us a nice review it goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction for you investors if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work head on over to our website g1cgrp.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.